Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. One California afternoon, William Damon received a call from his daughter. A sleepless night had led her to do a little internet sleuthing, and the result was Damon discovering that the father he had thought died in World War II had in fact not only lived, but had a career in the United States Information Agency before dying in Thailand in 1992 after a long illness. One of the results of that discovery, and the years spent not only learning about his father, but reviewing his own life, is Damon's new book, A Round of Golf with My Father, The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. As one friend of Damon's has written, it is a gripping detective story, a deeply touching personal memoir, a critique of developmental psychology, a compendium of life-giving maxims, and a celebration of disciplined life review. William Damon is professor of education at Stanford University and director of the Stanford Center on Adolescence. William Damon, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. I'm delighted to be here. Well, this is for longtime listeners. This is going to be a strange. They say a psychologist on historically thinking. What is going on here? I will say that um, this is history history adjacent. In fact, even more than adjacent um, for those of us who love a good archive story, a good hunt through the archives. We can vicariously experience one by reading your account. Um, that's that's a bonus. But there is a lot, a lot here about history and memory, and secrets. Um, let's just talk about secrets at first, because that's where you begin the book. Um, and I want to read a, one of my favorite quotes in just a little bit. But you've thought a lot about secrets, because you found that at the foundation of your life was a great, enormous secret. So first, let's talk about secrets. And you must have been thinking about this a long time, and you are one of the foremost experts on developmental psychology. Um, and you must have been thinking about the ways in which children lay down secrets, uh, have traumas, which they come back to all your life before you got that call from your daughter. Well, that's right. Uh, of course, there are two kinds of secrets that children and adults uh, live with. Uh, and one kind of secret is the most blatant kind of secret, which is when people don't tell you things about your family, about your life, about what has happened that in their past that might matter to you. And I was very much uh, burdened by that kind of secret because no one around me told me that my father was still alive, that my father uh, had a life after he never returned from Germany uh, after World War II. And I was given the phrase by my mother that my father was, quote, missing in World War II. And I basically mm -hmm. lived with that phrase for my entire childhood and adolescence. That was my mantra whenever anybody asked me what my father did or who he was. And I interpreted that to be that he died. He was, in fact, on my college record, it said he was killed in action in World War II. I don't know even where they got that, maybe from my mother. So that's one kind of secret, when people actually hide things from you. And I've discovered that lots of kids are burdened with that kind of secret. There are a lot of missing stories in families, maybe not quite as dramatic as mine, but you know, there's the grandfather that might have disappeared or the maiden aunt or something like that, that kids are just not told about. There's another kind of secret too, which is more of a psychological secret. And I write about this in the book which is that our memories produce secrets in us because our memories are not photographs. They're not absolute snapshots of exactly what happened. And so a lot of things that we think we remember or that we have an image for are actually at least in part constructions. And that includes information that maybe we have had or clues that people have given us that we just ignored because we didn't want to hear it or we twisted it around to mean something that it wasn't. And I had those kind of secrets too, because in growing up, as I went back over my past through this life review method that I write about in the book, I realized that 
there were all kinds of clues that people around me let slip by about my father that I kind of began to recall decades later, which for most of my life, I either blurted out uh, of my memory or twisted around because memory is not perfect. It's a construction. And we remember things the way we want to remember them in a lot of cases. So there are those there are two kinds of secrets, the, the actual objective secrets and the more subjective ones. I want to read um, uh, one of my from one of my favorite writers, uh, one of my, his favorite books, Frederick Buechner, who was a chaplain at Phillips Exeter. Uh, you were at Phillips Andover uh, about the same time. Uh, but he wrote one of the, he wrote uh, somewhat reluctantly several couple volumes of autobiography, and one of them is called Telling Secrets. And he writes this: "I not only have my secrets, I am my secrets, and you are your secrets. Our secrets are human secrets, and our trusting each other enough to share them with each other has much to do with the secret of what it is to be human." Yeah, could you that's respond to that? Quote. Yeah, that's a beautiful quote. I had not heard it before. Uh, but as soon as you read it, uh, it immediately connected with me and my experience. I'll get, just give you one example uh, of a secret that, as I discovered it, it began to really change my understanding of the story of my life. And in doing that, it kind of humanized it in, in a lot of ways. One of the things I discovered uh, decades later through my search for who my father was and what happened to him was that he actually attended the same high school that I attended. And that high school was a very special place. As you said, it was Phillips Academy Andover, a fantastic educational environment that I never, ever would have discovered on my own growing up in basically a fairly disadvantaged condition with a single mom uh, who had no resources in a town that, uh, a New England town that was kind of a depressed factory town. Uh, nobody had ever heard of these boarding schools or these fancy prep schools. But somehow, my mother managed to send me to Phillips Academy in Andover. I never knew why. How did I end up in this place? None of my friends have ever even heard of the place. <laughs> I later discovered when I was age 60 or so, uh, once I started doing my discovery quest for my father, that he had gone there. And that unraveling that secret explained a whole lot of things about my education, my purpose in life, how I discovered my purpose. And I began to, uh, as you said, it, it did humanize me because I, I, I disabused myself of the illusion that somehow I had uh, made it on my own or or that somehow it was all luck or something like that. There was a reason for it. And that helped me reinterpret my life history. Yeah. Let's go back to the um, shortly after you discovered this, uh, this your, your daughter discovered this from, I, I guess, just Googling, <laughs> Googling around. Um, you then quickly Googled yourself and found an interview that mentioned your father and you read it, but what rocked you back in your mental heels was not what I would have noticed, but you noticed. Could you, could you exp recall that and the phrase and why? Sure. And just one minor correction. My daughter actually had discovered that interview he, and okay. she uh, emailed me the link to it. So I give her credit for that. <laughs> uh, I, I, much more, that began uh, me doing much more research and I discovered a lot of other things, but she was the one that sent me that first link. And it was a very exotic uh, narrative, uh, an oral history that a retired uh, diplomat from the United States Information Agency uh, was talking about all kinds of things in his life. And he just happened to mention in the middle of the interview, Phil Damon, uh, who was a fellow diplomat and someone that he admired and respected. And he talked about Phil Damon a bit. There were all kinds of exotic things in that statement, including that Phil Damon, my father, uh, had become friends of the King and Queen of Thailand, that he had a distinguished diplomatic career, all kinds of things that I never knew and that astonished me. But the thing that really got to me the thing that I focused all of my attention on 
was a side statement that he made that this diplomat made that quote phil damon was a great golfer he was a big gregarious fellow and a great golfer and for some reason that was the one thing that ca that caught my attention and i think i think the reason was is that everything else was so larger than life that the golf was the one thing i could relate to because i love golf myself and i thought oh my god my father was a great golfer and then I, it immediately transformed into a little bit of bitterness and resentment uh, where i said well you know this guy who abandoned me and abandoned my mother he never met me i never saw him he never even expressed any interest in meeting me why didn't this guy come around at least once or twice when I was a kid to, to teach me how to play golf? Because then I would become, then I would actually be a good golfer. Uh, <laughs> I am far from a great golfer, which he was. And I resented that. But you have, I, I want to talk about golf, uh, which is not where I thought I would be going when I started your book. Um, my father, my, I, this is very much, I was interested in your book for a variety of reasons. And one of them is my father, um, this podcast will drop on the, of what would have been his 90th birthday uh, and 367 days after his death. He died two days before his birthday last year. Um, and uh, one of the things I learned from my father was to dislike golf and be suspicious of all golfers. Um, as he, <laughs> as he once said to me, it might lead to red pants. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I have never uh, really, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought that golfs, they look like a nice place to raise sheep, uh, golf courses. Uh, they do that in Scotland. That's a dual purpose. That's good. Uh, but um, reading your account of golf has made me as interested in golf. Uh, that's, that's, too, that's too faint praise. Uh, as interested in golf as I've ever been, it actually made me golf curious. Uh, because your relationship with golf and Phillips Academy is different than any other kind of Phillips grad or golfer that I've ever heard. So you could talk about how you got interested in golf in that mill sure. town, that shoe manufacturing town in, in Massachusetts, and then sort of your on again, off again relationship with, with golf. I'm really glad you asked me this because a lot of my friends do think of golf as a country club activity that you ride around in a little electric car and yeah. so on. The fact is that I, the, the fact is that's maybe not as well known is that there's a very lively working class golf out there. And that's the way I entered it. Uh, I started playing on a Muni course in Brockton, Massachusetts. And our phys, our phys ed instructor in school when I was in junior high school gave us little certificates that would allow us to play for, and I'm not exaggerating, 50 cents a pop. And we would get up there. And of course, you know, we didn't ride around in carts and I still don't. I lug my clubs over 18 holes uh, and um, and love to play in munis and everybody's out there. It's, so it's not exclusive or country clubbish at all. And it's great exercise. But I always say there are four, the, the four great human dimensions of life, um, physical, social, psychological, and spiritual are all possibly manifested in golf obviously physical, especially if you lug your clubs around, uh, it's a very mental game. Uh, you play as well as your mind is able to focus. Uh, it's social, you play with buddies and it's cooperative as well as competitive. You, uh, There's rigorous uh, ethical rules involved uh, and you call your penalties on yourself and you root for your opponents. You do all kinds of things that other sports don't have. And the spiritual part, which I write about in my book, um, is it's been written about by, for example, Michael Murphy in a book called Golf in the Kingdom, which is the best-selling golf book of all time. Uh, there's, there's almost a Zen-like experience where, where when you get out in the course and you're in the right kind of mood, it almost shimmers with the ghosts of the former golfers. So it's a very rich experience if you if you think of it that way and not just as a weekend um, experience where you go out and and fool around with with uh, a, a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of country club buddies. So um, you had played uh, and then you gave it up uh, because it was just a game, and you were a serious academic, and you had kids and a life. And so, how did you come back to it? Because you had come back to it before you found out about your dad. 
That's true. Uh, but as you said, I gave it up for something like 40 years. I had three, I have, I not just had, fortunately, they're still in existence, three kids. And, you know, they all needed rides and Little League and everything else in the world. So I had no time for golf. And I, as you know, have a very full career. I started playing again uh, when my youngest daughter finally went to college. Not finally, when she went away to college. <laughs> and, and we were, I mean, she went at a normal age. Yeah, yeah. And we, we were empty nesters. I had some time. And golf was a little bit like a, a furtive temptation for those 40 years. I did play maybe half a dozen times over the 40 years. And it felt like almost I was getting away with something uh, and, you know, I quote in my book, Oscar Wilde's famous comment that the best way to uh, deal with a temptation is to give into it. So after 40 years and an empty house, uh, I could allow myself the time that golf takes. And so I started going back and playing. And then I started discovering why I loved it so much when I was in junior high school and began reading people like Mike Murphy's book and so on. And, and began opening myself up to all the other rich dimensions of golf. So I'm a proponent of golf. I think it is a great game. Uh, it, people say it imitates, golf imitates life, but the real golfers say, no, life imitates golf. So that's, <laughs> well, that's kind of... Speaking of life. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, uh, now I'm off the... Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of life. Uh, you talk, you, uh, this is a, uh, we, you to begin chapter one by talking about the life stories, the stories we tell about ourselves to create our identity. Uh, and then you talk about the, uh, the method of a life review. Could you touch on both those things? Uh, uh, it, the narrative we tell about ourselves in which we are inescapably the center of existence. Um, it's hard to avoid that. We're the hero of our own novel. Um, uh, that is you know, it's the thing that perhaps it's the thing that gives us consciousness. Maybe it's the thing that consciousness comes from. Who knows? Yeah. Um, it's very close to the our in, the most innermost core of our being, as we can as we can understand it. Uh, and therefore, it's not. And that's not the same thing as the life review that you're undertaking. So, if you could tease that apart, I'd be. Well, actually, you said very well uh, what the essence and the meaning of a life review is. You're exactly right. Is that everybody thinks of the narrative, the story of their lives uh, as being the essence of who they are and who they want to be. And we do that naturally. We do that spontaneously. We always are telling ourselves life stories. We do it repetitively, sometimes small ones about uh, a shopping trip I took yesterday, sometimes big ones about my career search or my marriage or something like that. But the point is that we do that spontaneously and not always intentionally. In other words, we do it kind of randomly. Uh, it's natural and it is how we gain our consciousness and our identity and a sense of who we are and who we want to be. But what I propose in the book is that if the more we do it intentionally and aware of what we're doing and do it in a way that we bring out the highlights that allow us to understand what our true purposes in life are. The more we do it that way, the more we can accomplish all the things that a narrative sense of who we are is intended to do, which is ranging from finding and understanding our purposes in life, understanding how our pasts have created our present and where that's leading us in the future, getting active control over where we want to go in the future, which is very important. In other words, getting some sense of control in our lives rather than feeling, oh, life is just kind of dragging me along. And dealing, and this is a, a big part of my book, dealing with in the inevitable regrets that we all have about missed opportunities, about things we've done wrong, all of us make mistakes. Every human being makes mistakes in life. And as we think back on those mistakes, how do we deal with them in a way that doesn't get us discouraged or regretful and intentionally going back over our lives 
with what I call the life review method is a way to get control, get active control in a purposeful way of what we've done in the past, how that has led to the present, and most importantly, where we want to go in the future. So everything you said was right about what we do naturally anyway, but the point of my book really is that the more we do that intentionally with a kind of a method of thinking, the more we can accomplish the positive benefits of, of an identity with integrity, with purpose, with optimism for the future, and dealing with regrets in a way that is healthy and productive rather than leads to bitterness and resentment. So to do that, and this is what you are exemplifying, really, or, uh, or you're teaching us through your actions and in in, by writing this book, is that we have to confront the fact that our memories are often false and or self-serving, um, and that our narratives have to be expanded to include the life stories of the other people uh, whose lives have intertwined with our own. Uh, can we talk? We, we talked about memory a little bit before. Can we go back to that? Because you tell a fantastic story, which I intend to use all the time, uh, from Jean Piaget, uh, who you heard lecture uh, in the university. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's so it's so useful. It would, it would be it would come up in my first if I was teaching history right now, it would be the first day it would be used in the first day of class. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a classic story that Piaget has told many told many times when he was alive, and I was fortunate to be in a seminar. I visited Geneva for a month and heard him say it in person that uh, he had had a vivid memory of when he was a, a young, a very young child in a basically in a carriage being pushed along by a nanny that his parents hired uh, a um, Bandit came up and tried to grab him out of the crib, out of the sorry, out of the baby carriage, and the nanny valiantly pushed the bandit away and called for the a policeman who came with a, a gleaming truncheon and beat the bandit up and and the brave nanny then uh, told the parents all about it and was rewarded for her bravery, and he said he Piaget said he remembered that right down to every detail of the color of the nanny's uh, 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 umbrella, uh, uh, knocking the bandit away, the policeman coming up with the gleaming truncheon and so on. Then it turned out that years later, as the nanny was dying, she wrote a letter to the parents, a deathbed letter. She was on her deathbed and she was trying to remedy all the sins that she had done in her life. And the letter said that she made the whole story up, that she made it up in order to get a reward from the parents and be rewarded for her bravery. And Piaget said the amazing thing was that his memory was so solid and so visually, graphically detailed that he realized that memory is a construction. And he had come to believe the story, and uh, which he was told when he was a very young child. Uh, and embellish it with details over the years. And it was his example of how memory is a construction. Uh, it's based often on something real, and there's a variation. Sometimes it's, it's more accurate than others, but every time we have a memory over the years, we have co-constructed it and been partly the author of it. So um, this leads very nicely um, to some of the details that uh, you either reveal, uh, or I sometimes I'm reading between the lines in the book, and you referred to this earlier, that there were a number of instances um, where someone said something that you then realized were referring to the father you thought was dead. So one striking instance is your mother saying, do you want the child support that your father is sending? Um, right. Which is, it's astonishing that that's the one once I'll get back to that. Another was a letter from someone who said they were your half sister. Um, but yeah, uh, but you filed the letter away. Didn't know it, it. It took the revelation that your father was alive to come back. But what I don't understand is, and this gets me back to like shortly before you were on Oprah, 
in the in the, back in the '90s. As we all know, those who lived through it were the time of those the the um, the many many court cases of people wrongly accused of abuse, and the evidence was always suppressed memory. So me, I'm a historian. I don't know. Uh, I figured suppressed memory was uh, whatever. But when I read this account of the various other breadcrumbs that sort of were before you, I start to say, well, what is this? Is this suppressed memory? Uh, how do, what's, or was the narrative you had of your father, and, and, or how do memories get suppressed? Is it simply that the narrative you had of a absent father due to death was so strong that no other story could write itself in those pages? Well, I think uh, all of the above, uh, and uh, I'll give you kind of a sequence of the way I've come to understand how my memory was working during all that time. Uh, first of all, I know when my mother said, my mother did say to me when I was in college, a sophomore in college, she blurted out that my father had been sending her $100 a month in child support. That was the first time I actually ever did hear explicitly that he was alive. And so... The whole time of my childhood and adolescence up to sophomore year in college, I never heard even a whisper uh, that my father was alive, at least as far as I remember it. So if anything happened in those years, it was totally suppressed. I do remember my mother saying that when I was a sophomore in college. And the way I dealt with that at that time was to just not care about it. Uh, I'd already lived for 20 years without him being in my life. And at that point, I thought, I don't know what kind of a guy this is. He's probably some low-life loser. And so I'm not going to pay any attention to it. And I just, at that point, determined kind of consciously not to pursue that. So, so at, that, at, that, at, at that, that moment, though, from, from the age of 20 onwards, you did know that you're, you, you knew that your father was exactly. alive. That wasn't so when, you're, when, you're, when your daughter found the, the, when, uh, an interview about him, you weren't surprised yeah. to find out that he existed. That's right. I, I, starting at about age 20, I realized he existed, but I didn't care. And I had no interest in it at all. Uh, and, and that was more of a conscious repression where I said, you know, I don't want this to interfere with my own self-image. This guy was probably uh, an irresponsible, awful human being. and I don't want to identify with him. So I'm not even going to think about this guy. Uh, but up to age 20, there, there might well have been some clues that I did unconsciously repress. I just don't know because, but I think I think that that was the period of time when maybe the, my unconscious repression was. One was one question is I'm 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 not clear on you didn't know um, your grandparents, your father's parents. Well, so I did know, <clears throat> I did know my grandmother, uh, not not well. Uh, she came by or she invited me about once a year to visit her in her Boston apartment. Uh, that happened maybe five or six times when I was a child. There was no picture of my father there. She never mentioned him. Uh, she never told me he was alive or anything like that. She just wanted to see me and, uh, and chat with me. Uh, but again, nothing about my father ever came up during those visits. And I, so I, I never knew her very well, but that was a strange thing too. And why didn't I ask her about him? Uh, I don't know. I was a child, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but again, so there were, I was surrounded by possible sources of information, uh, but I never availed myself and with them and nobody ever uh, shared anything with me until finally my mother, when I was a sophomore in college, blurted that out. That conversation with my mother lasted less than a minute. And uh, I said, no, I don't want the child support. I was very embarrassed that she said it. I was aware, we were both aware that this is the first time she revealed anything. And after, and I forgot it as soon as I possibly could. I just ignored it. So let's go back to, let's, let's go to your father's, uh, his life story um, briefly. Um, could you describe... Um, Basically, your father up through uh, his going into Harvard. Yes, um, and and I'll just add one thing to the last yeah. statement. I 
I ignored everything about my father until I was ready to hear it, which was at about age 60 yeah. uh, when, I, when my daughter discovered it. At that point, I was fascinated by it, and I wanted to learn everything possible about it. But it took yeah. me six decades of life to, to, to get ready to do that. And that is a story of my, at that point, I felt secure enough in my identity to, uh -huh. to open myself up to this guy. But uh, before then, I wasn't. So, yeah. So when I started digging around about what he was like, I went to, I went back to our, the school that we both went to. And amazingly enough, they had records all about him. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned your interest in history. I became an <clears throat> amateur historian and learned how to dig into archives. And uh, I found amazing records of his school life, including <clears throat> that he was highly irresponsible. He was a shirker in school. And uh, that, of course, that irresponsibility continued when he abandoned and when he didn't come back to, uh, from the war to my mother and me and abandoned us. But that was very much part of his character during his school years. He uh, he used to fake illnesses to get out of work, and he would go to the infirmary, and he was generally a goof-off. He, he didn't do his homework, and he finally flunked out of Andover after three years. Uh, so he was not a success uh, in his school as a student. I was uh, stunned. I mean, in, in, <laughs> in your previous uh, career, you've written about, uh, about this. Um, yeah. I, but I, I was, it, so what's really weird is to find in those school records, how personal evaluations were in a way that yeah. I didn't discover until I went to Oxford as a postgraduate, uh, to have my colleagues or senior tutors say, well, the problem with them is they won't be told. And to make a sort of moral evaluation about, of a student was like, yeah. oh my God, you they do that? Is that legal? You know, to, to do that? Yeah, exactly. In the 30s, they did that for sure. And they uh, yeah. and they leave, it's an unparalleled sort of record too, which wouldn't exist today um, because exactly. that sort of information yeah. isn't being recorded. Yep, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, that's a good insight that that did, as somebody that's very familiar with education and what teachers write about students these days, uh, this amazed me, uh, what uh, the teachers back then used to do. Uh, nowadays, of course, it's very child-centered. And if, uh, if students have problems in school, the, it, it's more, oh, uh, what, what are the challenges they face? Uh, it's very sympathetic to the student. What's wrong with the school? But in those days, the student was rigorously held to high standards, and there were all kinds of moral uh, condemnations of my father's laziness, uh, the guy isn't tough enough, all kinds of stuff that that teachers would never write today mm -hmm. about his character, about his yeah. his lack of character. And what, what I, as I think I said to you before we began, there are certain things in the book which it makes me feel like I'm reading some kind of weird twin study. Um, uh, the golf, for example, that, that you two share. I mean, um, I mean, you see this too. I, I, I mean, just, just not to get a little too autobiographical, but a couple of years ago, I was, uh, proposing a, a, a reader on some agrarian authors. And so I had come up with a list of readings on American, American, mostly American agrarians. And I mentioned this to my dad and he said, oh yeah, Lewis Bromfield, your, your grandfather's Ambone. He read him and liked him. I was like, he did? Because I knew my grandfather Zambone was not really a reader. Uh, he was a sergeant in the American Expeditionary Force. He was a, he was a salesman. He, was a, he ran a store. He was a doer. Uh, he, and he died when I was three. And I have some memories, which I hope aren't, aren't self-created, of him. But it was astonishing to realize that I was somehow recapitulating what my papa had thought about, that he was interested in like organic farming. Uh, who who would have yeah. believed that? Uh, I wouldn't have believed that. How could I re recapitulate what a previous generation had done? You know, things you you find that from time to time as you get older, when you find out a little bit of a tidbit that people otherwise often forget. My father would not have written that down. My father wrote Lewis read Lewis Bromfield avidly. Wouldn't have read that, wrote that down in a biography of his dad. So I found that yeah. out by happenstance. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, we do re recapitulate things that our ancestors did or the way they acted. And some of it 
is genetic. I, I write in the book about the developmental science of this, and there's no question that biology and genetics plays a role. It's not destiny. It's, it doesn't determine who you are, for sure. But things do pop up across generations, and there's scientific evidence for uh, that explain that confirms that, and even scientific theories that explains how and why that happens. And I do discuss that in the book, and that's one of the reasons that people these days are so interested in ancestry searches, because it does reveal something about you and something about the past that has become part of your present. Uh, the, in this case, the past has to do with who your ancestors were and what they, what they were like. And, and there is that kind of continuity. But I do want to emphasize that it doesn't determine everything. Mm. We very much, uh, we operate within certain frameworks, but we make the choices ourselves that create the kinds of people we are. And so I'm not a deterministic biologically in, in, in any means. Certainly not. And this brings us back to one of your great, um, one of your great life subjects, which is purpose. Um, and it's, uh, as again, to get back to this, it's very strange, you reading your father's uh, reports at Andover and discovering him almost like one of your subjects or one of, one of the people that you've studied. Um, because here was a kid who was, whatever he had at 17, he does not seem to have had a lot of purpose. Um, but right. eventually, he's, he's feckless. Um, he lacks feck. Um, but eventually, he <laughs> he begins to develop feck. Um, could you describe? I mean, describe. You have a fantastic sort of uh, synopsis of a lot of your you've written of your many books and papers on purpose. Could you explain a little bit about just a little bit about purpose right now? And you know, sure. basically how we can actually, and also the very cheerful, cheering um, idea that you've always conveyed that we actually can. Uh, building our characters a lifelong task and it's not over when we're 22, which is what some people I think very wrongly and erroneously and sort of almost, it's almost evil to say that. Yeah, no, you're right about that. Uh, in fact, that's one of the, I think, landmarks of my work is that I show that, that first of all, as long as we are alive, we keep learning and purpose is one of the great capacities that we keep looking for purpose. We can find it all throughout life. And purpose is a fairly late developing capacity. Uh, it, it really, for most people, uh, they don't really have a commitment to purposes in life. And purposes can include everything from your vocation, to your family, to your faith, to your country uh, as a citizen. And often we don't really commit to these until, until post-adolescence. And that's exactly what happened with my father. Uh, he was purposeless uh, during his school days, but he was part of the greatest generation that was called to service during World War II. And he clearly became patriotic in some sense and committed to ideals, American ideals of justice and liberty. And I have a chapter in the book about what I discovered uh, of a very morally courageous bunch of actions that he took uh, w when he was in the army, uh, having to do with the maltreatment of prisoners. Uh, and in fact, General Eisenhower was involved in, in, having, in ordering my father to, uh, to testify about this. And my father did it in a courageous way that a lot of his fellow soldiers didn't do because they were afraid of the consequences. Uh, and there's a whole story there. And he was written up in the local newspaper where he grew up. The bottom line is he found purpose uh, in the army, and that purpose carried him through his career. His, he became a diplomat uh, during the Cold War. He uh, served in Germany and then Thailand, and he had quite a, uh, he, he was never a high-level diplomat, but he had a very committed uh, career. And so even though he had this, uh, this early life of irresponsibility, he committed this one great irresponsible act of abandoning his uh, wife and first child. But uh, subsequent to that, he found purpose, he found commitment, and I admired that. And that also helped me forgive him as I discovered more and more about his life. 
Could we um, also uh, talk about your mother? I mean, this is a book called Around the Golf with My Father, but I find your mother as fascinating as your father <laughs> um, oh. because um, she spent some time waiting for him to return. And yeah, I can't, and my imagination sort of fails at how hard that must have been. Um, well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, because my mother is not a major part of the book, but I hope she's an important part. And she was devastated by my father's uh, failure to return, shocked, amazed, uh, and, and broken in, in some ways. Uh, she went away, I think, for some kind of therapy for a while uh, when I was very young. And uh, she reconstituted her life. Uh, first of all, religiously, she um, uh, became a devout Roman Catholic, and that was very important for her life and mine at the time. And uh, she became a very early uh, career woman uh, at a time in the beginning in the early 1950s when very few women were were doing this, uh, and she she was uh, very interested in fashion. She had almost no education herself, but she was very smart. She was determined, and uh, and she had good taste. And she began by designing. She began by going into the advertising agency during the Mad Men era, uh, when it was dominated by hard drinking men. But she was my mother was tough, and she made her way through it, and then became a shoe designer, and finally ended up with her own little business, uh, designing clothes and so on. A successful, modest but successful business, as a very early, uh, early example of how women can succeed through a lot of grit and uh, against all kinds of odds and prejudice and so on. Uh, but uh, but she was a pretty valiant person, very a very dedicated mom. But she did have this one uh, characteristic of, uh, and maybe that was part of the generation of not wanting to talk about things uh, openly. And of course, she uh, did not disclose to me this great family secret that my father was actually still alive. Uh, his family was out there that I could have connected with, and I wish I had been able to because I grew up as an only child uh, with no family virtually. And now as I discover my wonderful cousins and half sisters, I wish I had known them for decades. It would have enriched my life. So that was my mother's uh, failing is that she did not uh, open up about that. But other than that, she was a, a, a valiant, a very dedicated mom, uh, a devout Christian, a, uh, a, a successful career woman at a time when all the odds were against her. And so I'm glad you mentioned her. She uh, she deserves a tribute. And a very canny entrepreneur. You describe how she puts together basically a bunch of cottage yeah. industries together and sort, sort of designs them and sells them to L.L. Bean. I mean, L.L. Bean wasn't L.L. Bean yet. I mean, it was it was more right. New England than anything else. But still, I just she was uh, yeah. she did a lot of different she had a lot of different acts in life. And she became fully herself late in life. Uh, I write about her as an example of ego integrity. Uh, really, when you discover who you are meant to be and who you want to be, she moved to Maine uh, late in life, started this little business, and uh, it really became who she wanted to be. And that, I think, was if, if I, I sort of did, as I said, I believe in doing life reviews. It helps you a lot. And I kind of did her life review for her. I mean, she she, she had been dead, of course, uh, uh, before I began discovering any of this. And it would have been very difficult for me to do this with her still alive. I, I wrestle with that in the book. I wish I had had that conversation with her, but that would have been so hard and so painful that in some ways I'm glad I was saved from that. But I'm very, that's one of the ambivalences in the book is, do I wish I'd had that, those difficult conversations with her or not? But I, there was no way to do it because she died at age 84 of uh, mercifully of a brain cancer that caused her no pain. And she died very quickly, but uh, she lived, she lived to 84 and had a very rich full life. You write uh, very beautifully about our life as a confluence of lives. And we've touched on this a little bit already, but could you, could you sort of, develop that a little bit for, for the listeners. Um, 
we are not merely ourselves. <laughs> um, we there are other stories that are in, that have created our story, and and what you're doing, of course, with your doing that life review for your mother and, and sort of for your father is figuring out how those stories then wrote your story. That's exactly right. Of course, the big the big secret, the big part that I discovered was that my father actually went to the same school that I eventually went to, and I would not have been there without him. And that school uh, changed my life. There's no question about that, because I had never been interested in learning at all before I went there. And uh, I was almost an anti-intellectual. And it was at that school that I learned the the pleasures and the joys and the meaning of becoming educated. So, and, and then his, you went his, to Harvard as your father had done, but also again you made better use of it than he had. Um, that's to be right. honest, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he didn't appreciate. It. I I appreciated it very much because I was so deprived. It, it came so easily to him that he was complacent about it. But there were a lot of people in my life that, as I did these archival searches about my grandparents, who they were, as I went through my memory and tried to really work out what was true and what was uh, not true and and interviewed members of my family about what really happened when I was a child, I learned more and more about the parts in my life that the roles in my life that other people played and how that how that helped shape who I am. I quote Faulkner, his great quote that uh, the past is not dead, it is not even past. And uh, it's really true that the past is part of who we are. And the more we understand that, the more we actually have control over it, the more we can say, all right, well, this is how I was shaped, but do I want this part or not this part? It enables you to make free choices that uh, if you're oblivious, you, you don't even have the freedom to do that. I have a three by five card framed over my desk that a, something a psychiatrist friend of mine wrote, uh, actually to be perfectly uh, frank, the guy who helped me out of uh, major depression. Uh, and it is, our memories are our future. Oh, that's and fabulous. Uh, there, there's a lot, the there's that, yes. No, that's it. No, that's the paradox that I write about. And actually the person that invented the life review um, was Robert Butler who was a psychiatrist dealing with depressive patients. And he believed that if you could get them to reconstruct the past in a more hopeful and purposeful way, uh, that could help. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know anything. And the book is not about depression. And I don't, don't really know anything about that in a clinical sense. But I do know that it certainly helped me uh, have a more positive, forward-looking, future-oriented uh, view, uh, then that's the paradox, is that, that understanding the past in the right way does prepare you for a more hopeful future, and it helps you make peace with the, your present, which is the subtitle of the book. The, um, well, let's talk about uh, one, one thing in particular, which is regrets, which um, I think perhaps uh, for the truly depressive person, regrets become the only past and the only present. Uh, I'm speaking with some authority there. And uh, also for the person who, uh, um, the person who discovers secrets and can be overwhelmed by them, either yeah. the first kind of secret or second kind of secret, can also, regret can be the only present. And I mean that one's personal horizon is bounded by only the words, what if, what if, what if. That's it. We cannot see beyond that. So you have a very nice uh, discussion of that and regrets good ones and bad ones, and how to have them. Yeah, and and I was subject to exactly all the kind of thinking that you mentioned, uh, the, oh, what if I had not done this, and how can I possibly ever live with this mistake I made? Uh, and one example is related to my father's family. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, quickly, I had actually gotten a letter when I was maybe age 40, uh, when I, as I said, I knew my father at that point had been alive, which I discovered at about age 20, but I, I actually got a letter from one of his daughters at age 40. And long story short, I tell the story in the book, but just quickly, I didn't really follow up on it because again, I was in that state of mind. I don't want to deal with this side of my family. 
it's too depressing, it's too risky, it's it's too threatening to me. So I just stuffed that away and forgot all about it. Now, when I rediscovered who this family was and that they were they're my family and I, I you know, I wanted to have a relationship with them at age sixty or so, I regretted that like crazy. Like how could I have been so stupid or you know, I missed that great opportunity. And there were lots of other regrets like that that I had. And what I do in the book is talk about how how I learned to think about that, that in a way that honestly acknowledged that they were mistakes and learn the lessons and try to correct the mistakes and not make these mistakes in the future. So that's number one approach to regrets is that you have to be honest about it and not deny them and learn from them. But then number two, and this is a little bit more in depth, and I think you have to kind of read uh, the sections in the book because it, it, it takes a long time to explain this, but just quickly coming to the understanding that whatever you did, whatever mistakes you made or whatever happened to you, you wouldn't be the person you are now if that hadn't happened. And accepting that, accepting who you are and living through that lens of who you are and learning that, you know, it, my life is not going to be perfect. Nobody's life is. In fact, my life actually may uh, have been diminished in a lot of ways, objectively, but not subjectively, because whoever we are, whatever conditions we're living in, we are the person we are, and we have the capacity to be grateful and, and to be thankful and to live fully from whatever position we're in now. That can be very difficult for people if really tragic things have happened. And I say in the book, you know, sometimes you just have to mourn a mistake or mourn a tragic thing that's happened to you, honestly, uh, and and deal with that and learn to suffer with it. And that that's the tragic part of life. But within the framework that most of us have, within within most of the conditions we have, we can make the best of it. And learning how to do that is, I think, the secret to learning how to move forward with a positive, purposeful view of life and a sense of authentic identity of what I called, or what Erickson called ego integrity, that here's, here's who I am. I've done my best. I'm going to do my best. I, I'm grateful for the life I've been given. I've made the best of it. And I still have a lot of life, whatever age I am, I have a lot of life left to live. And I'm going to absolutely go for it with everything I have. I just want to, uh, as we're wrapping this up, I wanted to uh, go to a round of golf that you actually did play with your father. You made, uh, this is one of the great archival moments, which only the, I would say I have to, really nerdy historians are going to love this part. You find, or a, a relative uh, and and they must the daemons must be a really the kind of pack rats that make historians sleep better at night because the future is safe with the historical artifacts. They kept a canvas golf bag of your dad's, um, hanging on a, on a on a somewhere, and in it was his clubs and even a you have a scorecard from the yep. Pittsfield Country Club, which the enabled Pittsfield Country Club which enabled you to go and play the Pittsfield Country Club and compare your game as how old were you at the time? Well, I was aged uh, in my 60s. but You were in your 60s it, and he was 12. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. How did, you do, how did you do against the old man who wasn't old at the time at all? Yeah, well, and using old, old really wooden clubs and, and golf balls that – the pre-Titleist golf balls, they're labeled the Kushnet, which is where Titleist made them, but they were unbalanced. There were even a couple of these balls left in the in the bag. Uh, I didn't use those balls. I used my club and my own balls, and the guy still beat me. I mean, that was the, <laughs> just the bottom line. He parred, I don't know, half a dozen holes in this, in this uh, course. Uh, I did all right, uh, but... Um, uh, he was obviously a, a prodigy or a, a you know, he, he, he was quite a golfer. And so this, was my, but it was a bonding experience for me. I, I pretended he was there with me. I, this was a beautiful country club. I, I reveled in, in uh, how glorious uh, the, the game was. 
playing on this chorus and imagined what his shots must have been like. And I shared this experience with my long dead father. And it, get, it did give me a sense that I had a father-son relationship. Hmm. Let's uh, finally, let's um, return to this concept of the life review. I, I, I would uh, I would like listeners to take away some, maybe some news they can use. Um, so maybe some, some tips and hints. Uh, Ancestry.com, uh, 24, all the DNA services, oh, incredible interest in this sort of thing. Uh, as a friend and guest on this podcast, Brent Tarter, who's a historian in Virginia, has said, there's some way in which geological research and sort of stuff that you've done is at the very, it is actually the very heart of historical research. Except when nice people tell me about their genealogies, I'm always a little disappointed because that's all that they're interested in. It's it's sort of a crossword puzzle that they're trying to complete as far as possible. And they never ask the so what or the why questions. Now, that line of of family history, like uh, guest Joe Amato, uh, um, I'll I'll put his link to his, his episode in the show notes. He went through his genealogy and in effect wrote a story of his family. He was doing a life review, really, uh, but from a historian's perspective. And he wrote a social history of the Amato family or of his of his of his his parents on both sides. And he's able uh-huh. to see the trends in American history on his certainly on his mother's side, his his father's side, relatively recent immigrants from Sicily. Um, so that's one thing where genealogy can lead us to. And it would be fantastic if in the next 50 years people do more of that and think deeper about the cultural and social influences on their family that have led to their life story. Another approach is to do what you've done. So having given that wind up, how could we go about doing this sort of life review for ourselves? Just a pen and a paper and lots of time or where would we begin? Well, first of all, I think everyone should do it in their own way. I don't do not offer a cookbook methodology uh, in the book, because I really believe it's an individual experience. And a lot of it is common sense. It's it's interviewing people in your family that are still alive. If you have uncles and aunts or grand aunts or grandparents or friends of theirs, uh, talking to them about what happened, uh, doing archival searches of the kind that you mentioned, uh, ancestry searches, also school records and so on. And so people can take a look at what I did and choose what parts of it could be relevant. There's also a a wonderful psychologist who has created a narrative identity method that actually has interviews that you can draw from. His name is Dan McAdams at Northwestern University. And I give a reference in the book to how you can find his work. He's done much more rigorous uh, work than I have on creating an actual method of of this. His work is for researchers, really. And so I don't necessarily recommend that people do all of his method for themselves either. His his method is geared to doing scientific studies. But what I'm saying is that people should pick and choose from the kinds of things that those of us that have done this have done and see what's relevant to their lives, what they're comfortable with, what they enjoy doing. It's a fascinating uh, enterprise, and you'll be highly motivated, I'm sure, by how interesting your life is, and your parents' life was, and your grandparents' life was. But I do think people should do it in their own way. And I offer one example of how one person did it, namely me. And people are welcome to borrow from anything I did. But I, I also recommend for a methodology to take a look at the interview that Dan McAdams has. And I give that reference in the book. He's at Northwestern University. Um, so that's another source. And the and the other sources that you just mentioned, Al, too. Uh, I mean, there, there are a number of people that have done these kind of memoirs. So I, I advise people to read memoirs and see how folks go about this. I, I do think it's, uh, at least I can say for myself, it was a very constructive activity that has enhanced my life and my perspective on life enormously and help me make sense out of all the secrets that both the objective secrets that people uh, did not disclose things to me and also the subjective ones of the ways that my memory had hid, hidden things uh, about about what forces in life shaped me and what my past was, that it helped me get a hold on that, a more active hold 
that I think has been very reassuring and constructive in, uh, in my life moving forward. Well, my guest today has been William Damon. He is author of the new book, A Round of Golf with My Father, The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. William Damon, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Al. So thanks so much for hosting me. I want to take a moment to introduce Historically Thinking listeners to another podcast, one I've thoroughly enjoyed since it first appeared. It's The Age of Jackson, hosted by Daniel and Galata, whom listeners will recognize from an interview I did with him earlier this spring. Each week, Daniel talks with authors of the latest books that focus on American politics, culture, religion, and just about everything else in the first 50 years of the 19th century. Lately, Daniel has featured conversations on the two Shawnee brothers who shaped American history, fear of Mormons and Jacksonian politics, and sexual tumult in 19th century America. Always engaging and interesting, The Age of Jackson is, I think, one of the best history podcasts out there. If you enjoy historically thinking, but think that sometimes I'm not doing enough podcasts on American history, particularly 19th century American history, and you know who you are, then check out The Age of Jackson, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.